Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Kelly T. Sanders from the University of Southern California. With her co-authors, Kelly has recently published a series of studies on air conditioning use in Southern California, with a focus on who does and who does not have access to cooling on hot days. This work, which touches on issues of energy and environmental justice, has big implications for managing the COVID-19 pandemic this summer and for managing climate change in the decades to come. Stay with us. Okay, Kelly T. Sanders from the University of Southern California. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Kelly, one of the questions that we always ask our guests who come on the show is um, is how they got interested in working on environmental or energy-related issues uh, from the beginning. So can you give us a sense of what your path was? Yeah, so my path was actually a little bit circuitous. Um, I had a long path of getting here, but as a child, I was always out in nature. So I think I was, you know, out with my dad toddling around at the age of one, backpacking through the um, Appalachian Mountains. And so hiking and mountain biking was a huge part of my childhood. Um, But as an undergraduate, I actually went into bioengineering. So I was also an athlete and I was interested in helping people. And so I was really interested in the design of prosthetics um, to help people that have, you know, gone through traumatic events. I was in a really bad bike crash when I was 19. um, So that was a passion of mine. But I I had this gap in between undergraduate and grad school where I actually had time to read. So I started reading about the world and I started reading about climate change and renewable energy. And I really got swept up in this conversation about sustainability. So um, I had what I call my first quarter life crisis. You know, I've had a few since then. (laughs) Um, And I switched from bioengineering and I went into mechanical engineering where I studied energy systems at the University of Texas. And from that, um, I really just developed this huge passion for understanding how energy systems impact the environment. Yeah, fantastic. And I should mention that you've been a guest by proxy on the show before because we interviewed one of your co-authors, Emily Grubert, um, uh, with whom you uh, published a really great study about water use uh, in the U.S. energy system. You may well have published other papers together as well, but that was the one that Emily and I talked about uh, on, uh, on the show a few months back. Yeah, she's been a fantastic collaborator. We actually spent some time at the University of Texas together. So we've actually done a pretty big body of work. So she's just a brilliant mind in the energy space. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk now about our main focus of conversation today, which is a series of studies that you've published over the last several years um, with some co-authors that look at a variety of issues related to temperature and energy use in Southern California. Uh, And I've just found this work really fascinating. Um, So can you give us a little bit of an overview of kind of what this work is uh, and give us a sense of why you and your co-authors were interested in exploring it? 
Sure. So this is a body of work that I completed with um, another professor at the University of Southern California named George Van Weiss and um, a PhD student that we worked with together named Mo Chen. And he is just graduating. So he just defended his dissertation, which is really exciting. Um, but what we were trying to do with this study is to really understand how residential energy use is going to be impacted by the increase in temperature due to climate change. So I'm an energy analyst and George Van Weiss is a climate scientist. So we kind of put our heads together um, to think about this question of, you know, how can we really understand how our energy system and by proxy some of the environmental impacts of that energy system are going to be impacted by climate change. And what we did is we actually requested smart meter records um, from one of our local utilities here, Southern California Edison, and we actually got two years of hourly smart meter data for nearly 200,000 customers. And this data has been completely anonymized, so there's no security concerns. It's you know held on a very, very secure server. Um, but what it enabled us to do is really this study with unprecedented spatial resolution, um, really understanding at the household level how different households react to changes in temperature based on historical data. And so what we're trying to do moving forward um, is to understand how might that change in the future because we have climate change, um, but we also have this thing called urban heat island, which essentially means that in cities, you know, your built infrastructure itself can hold heat. And sometimes you have these localized um, heat impacts of cities themselves, which is important as we um, continue to urbanize. So this was a really fun collaborative study, and I think it has big implications for, you know, what we have moving forward. Great. So thanks for that background. It's really interesting and thinking about, you know, not only what can we learn uh, about the future under climate change, but learning lots of stuff about, you know, access to energy today uh, in, in the studies that you've put out. And, you know, when I think about the concepts of energy poverty or energy access, sometimes called uh, energy justice, um, the U.S. isn't always the first place that comes to mind, right? We, we've done shows recently on um, issues related to energy access in Africa, and, and we're doing one soon on India. But, um, but what this work shows is that, you know, today there are substantial portions of Southern California where there are lots of people that don't have access to air conditioning. Um, can you give us a sense of how big that issue is and what communities are, are most heavily affected? Yeah, that those are all really great points. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this study because um, in the United States, we do have high penetration of ACs. So across the United States, um, about 87% of our households do have access to air conditioning. Um, but it's typically the most vulnerable and also minority communities, communities of color that don't have access. And because of the nature of limitations to prior study, just because we didn't have access to a lot of energy data, we just didn't have a good sense of exactly where these communities existed. 
But at the national level, we know that, you know, according to the Center for Disease Control, more than 600 people in the United States die from extreme heat events every year on average. And so that's actually more deaths than storms, floods, and lightning combined, which a lot of people don't really realize. So heat-related illnesses are actually a leading cause of death in terms of natural weather or environmental events. Um, so one of the reasons that we wanted to look at Los Angeles is it's incredibly racially diverse. Um, it's very economically diverse. But one of the really interesting keys that I didn't mention before is it's also very climatically diverse. Right, right. So, you know, you have the coastal regions, you have high desert or high mountains, you have low desert regions. And so it really gave us this unprecedented opportunity to look at how some of these economic and social tensions um, also kind of conflict with some of these spatial and climatic disparities across the region. Um, so using our methodology, we found out that um, about 69% of the Los Angeles region, the greater Los Angeles region that we investigated, has access to air conditioning. Now, a lot of the people that don't have access to air conditioning live on the coast where it's a little bit more mild. But in recent years, even in those areas, we see, um, you know, large installations of air conditioning. Um, so even here in Los Angeles, we found that um, there still are a lot of inland communities that deal with a lot of extreme heat events that don't have access to air conditioning. Um, and one of the big outcomes of this study, you know, as we kind of looked at this based on projections from the state of California about climate change, is that 30% um, of the census tracts that we identified as most vulnerable. So that means that they're, um, you know, they have limitations from an economic standpoint, they're poorer communities, um, and they also don't currently have access to air conditioning. 30% of those are going to experience um, as much as 32 extreme heat days per year um, by the end of the century. So that's, you know, that's a really big deal from a public policy perspective. And as you mentioned before, like the United States compared to the rest of the world is not in bad shape. You know, 87% penetration rate um, is pretty high. But as you look at this more broadly, we're expecting there to be somewhere between a two and threefold increase in the number of air conditioning units that we have globally. And most of that growth is going to be in um, more developing countries such as China and India and Indonesia. So you have kind of this twofold um, tension where we have the increase in the number of units that we're going to need, but we also have this increasing intensity with which we use the units that we have. So we really have to think about that from an energy usage perspective. Right, absolutely. And um, you mentioned one of the key findings by the end of the century when it comes to climate change. I'm just curious, do you remember what the sort of climate scenario was that you were using to, you know, to, to reach that finding? Yeah, so we used a reference of RCP 8.5, um, which is, you know, one of the climate scenarios, which is not the most optimistic by any means, but is kind of the norm in the climate science community of investigating these types of things. So there's certainly things that we could do to offset some of those um, climate change impacts, and I'm sure we'll get to those later um, in the questions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
uh, for people who want to dig deep on climate scenarios, we did a we did an episode maybe a couple months ago with um, Zeke Hausfather, who's a climate scientist from um, uh, the Breakthrough Institute, and uh, we talked a lot about RCP 8.5 uh, and other scenarios. So one other question um, about the way you sort of measure how households respond to heat and how they use air conditioning and consume other energy services. Um, you use this metric called temperature sensitivity, uh, which I, if I remember correctly, measures the amount of additional electricity households, you, households use in response to changes in temperature. Um, when we look at that measure, temperature sensitivity, uh, what do we learn about the way that different types of households use energy in response to differences in weather? Yeah, so you describe that indicators perfectly. Um, and so what we were doing is we were quantifying this electricity temperature sensitivity. And basically what this indicator is looking at is at the household level, what is the temperature at which we see some sort of sensitivity to cooling? So, you know, for me, I'm a person that runs pretty cold, so I might not turn on my air conditioning until it's, you know, 90 degrees outside, whereas another household um, might decide to turn on the air conditioning when it's 75 degrees. Um, so one of the compelling parts of our methodology is we could actually create um, this very personalized metric for every household that we analyzed. Um, and using that, we can see, you know, one, at what ambient temperature do you turn on your air conditioning? And two, kind of what is the intensity of that um, energy usage? So just like you said, what is the increase in electricity use that we use per degree warming that we see? Um, and what we found is that in climate zones where you have a higher average daily temperature, you see... Um, a lot more sensitivity to electricity to cooling, right? So that's a pretty um, intuitive finding. The hotter the, the climate zone, the more cooling that a household would be expected um, to show. But within those climate zones, we saw a very large sensitivity um, to poverty level. So what we did is we basically took all of the climate zones that we were analyzing, and like I said before, um, the beauty of analyzing Southern California is you do have this diversity of climate zones. And so within each one of those climate zones, we looked at this relationship between poverty levels and air conditioning use. And what we found is that households in more affluent census tracts, which is, um, you know, small little subdivisions of population that we analyzed, and they generally have higher electricity temperature sensitivities than those in less affluent census tracts. So in more layman's terms, the electricity usage for more affluent households is typically more sensitive to those ambient temperature changes. And again, that's a very intuitive result, but um, putting some quantitative rigor we thought was really important from a policy perspective in terms of identifying the actual neighborhoods where this is, you know, you have this, these concentrations of vulnerable populations. Now, one of the limitations to this study is we didn't have a lot of information about the households themselves. This is really just looking at the amount of electricity that a 
um, household uses against the temperature that was measured at that particular day or at that particular hour. Um, now what we're doing is we are developing more sophisticated methodologies to use machine learning techniques to really understand how things like home vintage and home size um, and occupancy impact some of these, um, these tensions between electricity and temperature changes. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so you can get to that more granular level of understanding how different households are responding. Um, but you're right, that does make sense. And but it but it's really important to sort of demonstrate it, uh, that sort of major finding. I think sometimes, at least for some folks, there's an assumption that because electricity is relatively cheap, that uh, turning on the AC, you know, wouldn't be a big barrier for for a lot of folks. But, you know, one of the things that comes out really clearly in this study is that when it gets hot outside, the you know the census tracks with the higher income they crank up the ac more uh so it seems to demonstrate to me at least pretty compellingly that you know um that income level uh does make a difference when it comes to you know access to actually using energy oh absolutely so kelly you mentioned a few minutes ago um one of the estimates for you know the impacts of of climate change by the end of the century uh, in Los Angeles. Are there other sort of implications of climate change uh, that you think about when you think about this work? Yeah, so I think that one of the big takeaways for me in this work is this inherent tension that we have between climate change mitigation policies. So those are policies that try to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that we put into the atmosphere. And then climate change adaptation policies. Those are the policies that try to help protect us from some of the worst consequences of climate change. And in some cases, those interventions or those policies might be mutually beneficial. So a good example of that might be wind turbines. Um, as we install more wind turbines, we are increasing renewable energy so we can offset some of our fossil fuel usage. And wind turbines also aren't sensitive to temperature like our big thermal fossil fuel power plants and nuclear power plants are. They also don't utilize water for cooling as our thermal power plants do. Our power plants actually use a lot of water for cooling. So as it gets hotter and as our water resources get more scarce, you can actually have vulnerabilities. So wind turbines and also solar panels are mitigation strategies that are also conducive to being good for adaptation. Now, one of the tensions that this study unveils is that some interventions have conflicts. So air conditioning is one of the leading um, reasons that we use energy. And as I mentioned before, um, we're expecting our energy usage to go up quite a bit globally because of these increased needs for cooling. Um, so it's not going to be great from a mitigation standpoint because the majority of our global energy system and our United States energy system is still dependent on fossil fuels. But at the same time, as we're showing, you know, extreme heat events is a huge public health concern. So people need access to air conditioning. Um, so there's this tension between what's good for adaptation might not be good for climate change mitigation. Um, desalination is another really good example of this. Desalinated water, um, taking you know water from the ocean, for example, and turning it into drinking water, might be really good for drought-proof 
waterproofing our water supply, but at the same time, treating that water has an enormous energy cost. So again, that might be good for adaptation, but not so good for mitigation. So we really have to think holistically about these issues because sometimes the silver bullet in some communities um, are exactly what you know, other communities really worry about. So I think we have to think about some of these policies that we consider a little bit more holistically so that, you know, we don't solve one problem by creating another. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, well, let's let's think about some of those solutions now uh, and, and talk briefly about some of the policy implications of this work. Um, you know, there uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about climate mitigation policy and environmental policy to reduce impacts on uh, wildlife or uh, natural ecosystems. Uh, but are there any policies that come to your mind when you think about ways to make it easier for low-income households to pay for air conditioning or other energy services? Yeah, there are federal programs that exist to try to get people that might not have the economic resources access to cooling and, and also heating when it's very cold. And so the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program um, is a good example of that. That's a federal program that helps low-income households um, get access to things like weatherization. That could be things like um, fixing leaky doors and leaky windows, installing insulation to make their homes more energy efficient, um, fixing broken and inefficient furnaces and air conditionings. Um, it can also help them pay for heating and cooling in their homes, so directly offsetting some of those energy costs um, and avoiding shutoffs. So that's a federal program, and it, and it varies a little bit from state to state, as many federal programs do. Um, there's also a weatherization assistance program, which also helps low-income families reduce their energy bills. And there are also a lot of policies um, at the state level that try to prohibit utilities from cutting off um, electricity to people that can't pay their energy bills. And, you know, I think this is a really pertinent discussion at this moment because right now we're obviously dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. And because of that, there are a lot of families that are going into this summer in a really precarious financial situation. And so luckily, um, there are some federal assistance programs that are thinking about this a little bit. Um, the state of New York has implemented some policies. But this is really something that we need to get our head wrapped around. So the CARES Act, which is the Corona Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, um, implemented by the federal government, does have about $900 million in funding for home energy assistance. Um, so that's that helps families um, with some of these challenges related to paying their energy bills. And I think um, at the city level, New York City has really been a leader in this. So um, what they've implemented is a COVID-19 heat wave plan to protect vulnerable New Yorkers. And the city is actually planning to provide tens of thousands, over, over 70,000 um, air conditioners, in fact, to low-income seniors. So those are seniors that are over 60 years old. Um, 
and also modify some of their cooling centers to accommodate some of these social distancing concerns um, to help New Yorkers be a little bit more um, protected from these extreme heat events that we're expecting. So this is really important for cities to start thinking about because, you know, typically what a city will do when it's really hot in the summer is to create these public cooling centers, whether they be, you know, public libraries and public spaces like that. Um, in the summer going into COVID, we have this issue where, you know, we have social distancing. And so this is going to be a huge challenge for cities and other communities to think about how, on one hand, do you protect people that don't have access to air conditioning from these extreme heat events, while also trying to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, so this is really a coupled challenge that, you know, we are seeing some response to in some regions but um, it, it's going to be a pretty big deal as we move into, you know, the hot months of July and August. Yeah. And what that makes me think about is the sort of overlap of demographics where the people that may uh, need cooling centers the most, uh, particularly if they're more elderly uh, or are in um, lower income uh, groups, might also be the same population that could be most vulnerable to COVID as we've seen over the last few months. And so that kind of amplifies the challenge, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one last question before we go to our top of the stack closing question, which is um, just asking you to to think broadly about these policy issues. And, um, you know, you mentioned a couple policies that uh, California, New York have uh, have started to implement. We talked about some federal policies. Are there other policy approaches that you think might be useful to either add to the mix or expand uh, to try to reduce the risks of uh, um, uh, of not having access to air conditioning when it's really hot outside? Yeah, well, one of one of the big policy pushes that I think, you know, we just can't do enough of is energy efficiency programs. Energy efficiency programs tend to be um, cost beneficial and pay for themselves. Um, and, you know, they're good for both adaptation and they help us use less cooling or less energy for cooling. Um, so I think as much as we can do for energy efficiency and energy efficiency codes um, would really behoove us. Of course, you know, over the long term, what we really need to think about is climate change mitigation. How do we actually offset some of the worst impacts that climate change has in store for us. And the, those interventions are, you know, well discussed, like increasing renewable energy um, and those types of programs. But again, I, I made this point before, but I think it's really important. We need to think about these mitigation strategies and also act, you know, where can we get the coupled benefit of mitigation and adaptation? And so, you know, some of the, the neat academic work that's going on in the realm of urbanization is thinking about, you know, how do we actually cool down our cities? How do we actually offset some of those impacts of urban heat island? Um, so for example, my co-author on this study, George Van Weiss, is doing a lot of work to understand, you know, how do you make cool cities? How do you make reflective roofs and reflective pavements that can actually um, reflect some of the heat such that it never um, enters the city or affects our, our body temperature. 
Um, increasing green spaces, you know, as we increase green spaces, our city cools down and you also get this um, extended benefit that plants capture CO2. So there's a lot of things that we can do to offset climate change, but also increase our own resilience to the impacts of climate change. And I think those are the policies that are really going to give us the bang for the buck. And maybe kind of a broader point is, you know, often we look at climate change in this environmental community. So we look at it as an environmental problem or a problem for sustainability. But just like COVID-19, it's really going to challenge every element of our society. So we really have to get out ahead of it um, and think about how are we going to protect our most vulnerable communities um, from some of the largest economic consequences of climate change? How do we protect um, vulnerable communities from bigger hurricanes, more wildfires, more extreme heat events? Um, and that's probably going to take a lot more social programs. And I think that might be one of the opportunities of the moment that we're at, you know, we're seeing this confluence of conversation at the intersection of both um, public health, you know, access to health care, and then also racial injustice. And those are going to be two critical elements to address as we think about how climate change is going to impact our society. So I really hope that, you know, one of one of the unintended benefits of, of 2020, for as crazy as it's been, is maybe we get some of those social policies into place so that we have more of a safety net for people as we see um, some of these more extreme events related to climate change. Yeah, that's a really great point and, um, and, and a great one to end on. And I think we're all going to be watching those policy developments over the next months and years to to see how we address those problems and hope that we can address them in a way that is smart and actually protects people. Um, so let's go now to our, our final question that again, we ask all of our guests. It's um, asking you what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So something you may have read or watched or heard recently uh, related to this topic or anything else really that you think is interesting and you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll just uh, briefly recommend a book that is it's literally on the top of my actual my my literal stack on my bedside table it's it's a book that I think came out a little while ago but it's new to me it's called these truths it's a history of the United States um, so it's kind of a big book but um, but I've, I've gotten some recommendations from people I trust uh, who say it's really fantastic it's written by Jill Lepore who writes for the New Yorker and is a historian at Harvard uh, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it and these times when we're all kind of reflecting on the state of our of our nation, uh, I thought it was a good time to, to revisit the history a little bit. So that's what's on the top of my stack. How about you, Kelly? Yeah, so one of the books I really enjoyed during uh, my quarantine is a book that was published last year by um, a scholar named Vaclav Smil, oh, yeah. who is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba. And I mean, he's a prolific writer in the area of energy and energy history. And last year, he came out with a book called Growth, um, From Microorganisms to Megacities. And he really grapples with this question that I think is the elephant in the room when it comes to how we 
deal with some of the environmental and climate change challenges that we have moving forward. And that is that we have this economic system that is kind of dependent on sustained growth over time but we have limited resources. So he kind of steps through technological advancement um, throughout history and particularly through the lens of how we've manipulated, produced and consumed energy over time and some of the advances that we've had when it has come to agriculture all the way to today, you know, discussing how artificial intelligence and some of our computational advances um, have scaled over time um, to think about, you know, into the future as we're dealing with urbanization and population growth and climate change. Um, what can we expect based on looking at technological advancements of the past? Um, you know, how can we deal with this environmental crisis going forward when we do have these finite resources? Um, I guess I'll say that it's not the most optimistic book I've ever read, but I, I do think it gives a lot of really good insights into some of the things that we need to key into as we think about solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, both of us are sort of thinking about big picture questions and we're turning to the past and turning to history to help us try to make sense of it. Absolutely. So um, Kelly Sanders from uh, the University of Southern California, thank you so much again for coming on, talking to us about this fascinating work uh, and also thinking about policies and implications for the future. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been so fun. Again, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.